So there's a story about an avid golfer. We'll totally randomly call him Jim. And he contacts a medium to ask if there are golf courses in heaven. The medium says his request is highly unusual, but he'll try to give it a try. He'll give it a try and get back to him in a few days. Three days later, Jim gets the call. Well, he says, what's the news? Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. Okay, what's the good news? The good news is that there are courses in heaven and they are spectacular, without a doubt, better than anything you've ever seen or imagined on earth. And you'll have 24-hour access with your own personal angelic caddy. That's great, exclaimed Jim, and what's the bad news? Uh, you've got a tea time tomorrow morning at 8. <laughs> it's a funny story, but it's also about as close as a lot of people like to get to being reminded of one of life's most fundamental realities, death. And unless someone close to us dies or we're otherwise forced to ponder it, really think about it, Culturally, for the most part, we keep it tamped down because it doesn't fit our largely comfortable and pain-free narrative. Dude, as we used to say in Southern California in the 70s, you're harsh in my buzz. And we'd like to keep it far away. So totally tangentially, Speaking of dude, I, I was just reminded of this story. I think I may have told it to somebody the other day. My first year of ministry, 1983, Southern California, a kid came into our youth group named Tad. You remember Tad? He came to faith. He was active in the group. I baptized him as Tad. And it wasn't until after he left and gra graduated and left for college that somebody finally told me um, his name isn't actually Tad. Tad stands for totally awesome dude. <laughs> so I don't even know what that guy's name is. I, ca I can't remember anymore. That's a good name though, right? <laughs> oh, where was I? Death. That's it. It hasn't always been like this, this avoidance of the topic. Historically, the living have been much closer to death, and its reminders far more ubiquitous. For example, at the raucous celebration of a Roman military triumph, the, the public would have their eyes glued to the victorious general at the front of the ranks, one of the most coveted spots in that day. Only a few would be mindful of the aide just behind the commander, quietly, continuously whispering into his ear, memento mori, remember death. A sobering and I think wise thing to hear at the tempting height of glory and victory. And try as we might to avoid it, we all need this reminder from time to time. As Anglicans, at least those who still join in this rite, we get it at least every Ash Wednesday as ashes are imposed on our foreheads with the words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's no avoiding it. 
That is, of course, true. And it's a good and necessary reminder, but it's not really the ultimate point, is it? Because those words of imposition, as well as the seasons of Lent and Easter, have a telos, an aim. They point us to something, an even deeper reality beyond death, namely resurrection. New bodies, new life, new desire for God, new heavens, new earth. In fact, all things new. And I want to give focus to the, that deeper reality from Revelation 21 and 22, the consummation of all redemptive history, of what awaits us in the age of resurrection. Romans 6, 5 says, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I hope today we can see just some of what that will mean for us, but not only for us, for the entirety of creation. We're going to be looking at Revelation 21 and 22, that passage that we read this morning. So if you've got your Bible or a device and you want to look at it with me, that would be terrific. Because I believe the person who knows that his or her destiny is glorious and certain, will be free to live the most radical life of love and sacrifice here on earth. As individuals and as a church, we will never pursue our shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors with the abandon it requires, apart from the sure and certain hope of our glorious destiny and that of the whole universe. St. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 4, and 5, we have heard of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see, it's the assurance of that hope that releases the radical, risk-taking love that compels people to look at your life, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, and ask for a reason, for the hope that is in you. The invincible purpose of God for creation and for his people will not be complete until all things are made new and the glory of the Lord fills them all. I, I think I, I want to say that again because that's the point of this whole passage. The invincible purposes of God for creation and for his people will not be complete until all things are made new and the glory of the Lord fills them all. Revelation 25 says... Behold, I am making all things new. And he affirms the certainty of it in two ways. First of all, he's sitting on his throne when he says it. The throne of the universe. He who sat upon the throne, it says, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And after he had said it, he added, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. In true. So God's desire for us is to read this and to be sure of it. He wants us to have the assurance that no matter how much evil and suffering and futility that we see now, he will, in his time, make all things new. And as I read it, the passage we read today describes four ways newness is coming. First, 
God is going to make us spiritually and morally new and glorious. Romans chapter 7 describes the painful truth of what I, and I'm betting most of you, experience as one of the great frustrations of the Christian life, our ongoing and unending, it seems, war with sin. Here's how uppercase S, St. Paul describes it in Romans 7, verses 21 through 25. And you can, you can just feel the frustration. Actually, I'm going to go back to verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost being, but I see my members, in my members another law waging war, the law of my mind, and, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This war is incredibly frustrating for the children of God who yearn for sanctification. We seek to be holy, and we fall far short of the holiness we seek. We desire to love, and we think, say, and do hurtful things. We long to worship, but we feel cold. We desire to walk in peace, but, and we experience anxiety. We pursue purity in thought, and impurity assaults our minds. I don't think I'm just speaking for myself in this. There is some progress to be sure, as the Spirit helps us in our weakness. But what we long for is deliverance from the inclination to sin. And that's exactly what God promises when he makes all things new. We will be made spiritually and morally new, not just partially as now, but holy. Check out verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a picture of the church prepared and made lovely for her husband, Jesus Christ. When God makes all things new, he makes the church, the people of God, spiritually and morally beautiful for his son. Look at the way it's described in verses 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had been, who had who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. When God makes the bride ready for the sun, the way he does it is by giving us his glory. Verse 11, having the glory of God, it says. And this glory will purify us so deeply and so thoroughly that we will be like a rare jewel, clear as crystal. We will be made so good and so right and so pure that we'll be like a translucent jewel that people will look at and see straight through without seeing, without seeing any impurity at all. Nothing secret, nothing shameful. That's the first way the newness is coming. God will make us spiritually and more morally beautiful for our final eternal marriage with his son. Secondly, God is going to make us physically and bodily new and glorious. The scriptures do not teach that the final state of glory is that of disembodied spirits. Plato and his buddies imagined it that way because they thought the body was a drag on the freedom of the spirit. But the scriptures teach a very different destiny for the daughters and sons of God. He will make all things new, including our bodies. Verse 4 points us in that direction. He will wipe every he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So no more death, no more pain, no more tears. And what that means is that the body we know now will be changed. It has to be because it dies and it hurts and it cries. If death is gone and pain is gone and tears are gone, then the body as we know it here is gone. That may sound a little like Plato, good riddance to the body of pain, but the New Testament is emphatic that the point is not good riddance to the body, but that God will make our bodies new. We are embodied beings living in a physical world, and we will spend eternity as embodied beings living in a physical world, corruptible now, incorruptible then. This is all in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in case you want to check it out. Sure, all stuff, everything can be distorted and corrupted. Food, wine, sex, money, work, you name it. Because sin is not only doing bad things, it's also making good things ultimate things, which is why I spent so much time last week talking about properly ordering our loves. But because of the fall, making good things ultimate things is our tendency. But still, our physicality isn't a result of the fall. It's what God always intended for us for eternity. And resurrection affirms that. Paul put it like this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's what Romans 6, 5 means. We shall certainly 
be united to him in a resurrection like his. It is a new body. It will never die again. It will never hurt again. It will never cry again, except maybe for joy. When God makes all things new, he makes our bodies new. Third, God is going to make all creation new and glorious. The new heavens and the new earth isn't a, a brand new creation out of nothing, but the old creation purified, renewed, restored, and transformed into something once again as it ought to be. The phrasing here is important. The one that was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new, not all new things. Every one, and just as we saw, everything, or as we just saw, and everything fulfilling their creational design. What's our prevailing cultural assumption? Life's a you-know-what, and then you die. That's basically all there is. And most religions, including some Christians, and virtually all secular worldviews, though I hate that term secular, but it, it is descriptive, believe that we are headed toward destruction. But biblically, the present world and the new creation are somehow connected. There's an unimaginable, an unimaginable continuity between the now and the not yet, which is why I believe that as Christians, we should be the very best stewards of our planet. N.T. Wright wrote that resurrection teaches us that the transition from the present world to the new one will not be a matter, or will be a matter not of destruction of the current space-time reality, but of its radical healing. The hope, as far back as prophets like Joel, whom we read today, is that this earth and these heavens will be made new. God will renovate the whole thing. A kind of literally universal rehab project. And everything futile and evil and painful will be done away. Paul, man, I'm quoting him a lot today, but he did write 31.57% of the New Testament according to the internet. If you don't count Hebrews. <laughs> By the way, who counts those kinds of things that comes up with those figures? But he put it like this in Romans 8, 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the same liberty of the glory of the children of God. The newness and the glory of the church and the daughters and sons of God is primary and first. But then God does the same thing for the rest of creation and gives us a glorious creation to savor and to steward. The fallen creation subjected to corruption and frustration by the fall will obtain the very same freedom from futility and evil and pain that the church is given. So when God makes all things new, he makes us spiritually and morally new. He makes us new physically, and then he makes the whole creation new 
so that our glorified environment perfectly fits our glorified bodies and spirits. That leaves one last work of renewing when God makes all things new. He will make our relationship with him new and glorious. John tells us about this in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. I, he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. It's true that God is with us now. That's what Emmanuel means. We know that his spirit dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And Jesus promised never to leave us, even to the end of the age when he gave the, the great commission in Matthew 28. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul wrote, While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Here we walk by faith and not by sight. So there's a deep and painful sense in which we are away from the Lord. We do not see as we will one day see. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, for they shall see God. It's a promise. Something greater is coming for all of us in our new relationship with him. That's the heart cry of Revelation 22, 4 that says, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. See, when God makes all things new, he will make us spiritually and morally as pure and flawless as crystal. He will give us a body like the body of his glory. And if you want to have your mind blown, think about the fact that Jesus is in heaven right now in a physical body. I don't know how you imagine him, but that, that to me is mind-bending. He will renovate all creation to make all futility and evil and pain to take it all out of it. And finally, he himself will come to us and we shall see his face. And so, Forever and ever, we will live with pure hearts and glorious bodies on a new earth in the presence of the glory of our Heavenly Father. Thanks be to God.